Welcome to It's Friday, your Mail Plus guide to the best of what's happening in the world of arts and entertainment. My name's Jim White, and this week we'll be celebrating the return of a musical visionary who disappeared from view nearly 40 years ago. Welcome back, Bobby Gentry. La, la, la. We'll be chatting with the best-selling crime writer, Mark Billingham, who tells us that the best crime writers have in their soul a spark of cruelty. I mean, I think it was Graham Greene who said all writers have a chip of ice at their heart, and I think crime writers, that, that, chip, is, that chip is quite large. First, though, to shine a light on the best of the week's entertainment, I'm joined by the Daily Mail's film critic, Brian Viner, the Mail's music man, Adrian Thrills, and the Mail's peeps of the New York scene, Jackie Stephen. Um, Adrian, a, a very unexpected release uh, that you've got your hands on this week. Yeah, well, that's, it's actually a, a relatively quiet week for a change in terms of uh, new releases, but there, there are a couple of interesting reissues. There's a Paul McCartney's Flaming Pie album from 1997, has uh, been get dusted down and given the deluxe treatment. Uh, but perhaps even more interestingly, Bobby Gentry, The Delta Suite, which is an album from, from 1968. And uh, Bobby Gentry, she was one of the, these singers who um, she had kind of, you know, the world at her uh, footsteps or whatever. And she just walked away from it all. In 1982, she just gave up music. She hadn't made, actually made a record for 10 years before that. So this reissue, it's a really good indication of, of what a talent she was. She was a, a singer-songwriter, but she didn't fit that kind of confessional mode of the kind of female singer-songwriters of the late 60s and early 70s. She was, a, she was like a country soul singer. The Delta Suite is a concept album about uh, the rough and tumble of everyday life in the, for a family in the Mississippi Delta. And it's just got some great songs. It's got a really kind of lovely, kind of clammy, swampy summer feel really kind of nights record for these hot summer nights it's, it's one of those records it's like an unsung classic that uh, i think is really now getting the um the attention and the plaudits that it's due well let's hear a, a track from it Yeah, I'm liking that. But obviously the story, it's just, you know, coloured by the fact that uh, she walked away from it. I mean, there's, there's been other examples of that. I think obviously Bill Withers, he, he kind of walked away from music in 1985, uh, didn't make another record. John Deacon of Queen, he, um, he kind of chucked it all away. And uh, I think Grace Slick of Jefferson Airplane, she retired in the 80s and said rock and rollers over 50 look stupid and they should all retire. <laughs> so, uh, Brian, was there any yeah. equivalence of uh, kind of movie stars who moved away, well, uh, just dropped out at the, at the height of their fame? There are different kinds of comebacks, aren't they? There's the, there's the comeback where somebody fades from view because they've had some personal crisis like Robert Downey Jr. or Winona Ryder. And then there's the, the comeback that we associate with people like John Travolta where they just, you know where he turned up in Pulp Fiction after those years of doing movies like Look Who's Talking, you know, so, and just changed his image completely. Matthew McGonaghy is another, another example. But I suppose the ones who fade from view in, almost entirely, I'm thinking of Deborah Winger, who was such a massive star in the, in the 80s, and my children's generation just don't really know her. Um, she's, she's back in a forthcoming film called, called 
Cachillionaire or something. So, um, yeah, so she's an example of somebody who, you know, who faded from view pretty much at the height of her fame. And Jackie, what about, what about you? Uh, who's come back and, and you've really cheered them on that they've returned? Well, I suppose Tom Jones is an obvious one because his son reinvented him with uh, you can leave your hat on or keep your hat on, whatever it is. Anyway, it was all to do with men being able to strip and wear nothing but their hats. That's all I remember about it, really. <laughs> so uh, Tom had a big comeback. There's Shirley Bassey, who's just releasing an album at the age of 83. And I was reading this week about Cameron Diaz. Now, she's a fantastic actor who gave everything up and is now sort of saying that she did it for personal reasons. But I suspect that she'll be back. And Daniel Day-Lewis, of course, who renounced the film industry. But uh, I suspect that he'll be back. I think with actors, and I don't know what you think about this, Brian, I think that if you're an actor, it's very, very hard to give it up completely. And what they do is do lots of interviews saying about why they've given it up. It's like people who yeah. take coke. They've got two subjects. They talk about God and why they're trying to give up coke. Yeah. It's like actors who give up. That's all they talk about all the time is why they gave up acting. And <laughs> it's like just having another performance. I think, yeah, I think you're right. Daniel Day-Lewis is a great example. It'd be very interesting to see whether he stops, is he cobbling or something in Ireland at the moment? He's, <laughs> He's well, making cheese probably. That's what they all go oh, and the, do, don't yeah. they? And actually, you talked about Tom Jones and Shirley Bassey there, Jackie. You're the only Welsh person who's not made a comeback yet, aren't you? You've never been away, really, have you? I was never away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and what's been going on in the movie world? There's a film out this weekend called An American Pickle, Jim, and it's, uh, it's both sweet and sour, if you'll forgive the pun, which Jackie might not, but anyway, it's a, it's a, ti it's a time travel comedy starring Seth Rogen, who plays a character called Herschel Greenbaum, He's a dirt poor Jewish grave digger uh, in 1920 in Russia or Poland, or the, the film doesn't really specify, but he's, he's based very conspicuously on Topol and Fiddler on the Roof. Uh, and he gets married to Sarah, played by Sarah Snook, who's in Succession, uh, who's a fantastic actress, and we don't see enough of her in this film, actually. But they emigrate to New York City, where he gets a job in a pickle factory, uh, he falls, as you do, into a massive vat of pickles, which perfectly preserves him for 100 years. Uh, and then he re-emerges 100 years later in modern-day Brooklyn, where the only family member he can find is uh, his great-grandson, also played by Seth Rogen. So we can, just, we can just hear the moment now when he actually falls into this huge vat of pickles uh, and then wakes up 100 years later. <laughs> It's been 100 years. The pickle brine preserved him perfectly. It's too old to do that. The world has changed. Everyone I know is gone. You were able to track down a great grandson. Greenbaum. Greenbaum. <laughs> this is nuts. And then it becomes a story of their relationship. And so it's, it's a comedy. There's, uh, you know, a lot of good kind of time travel jokes in it, but stuff that we've seen many times before, and also fish-out-of-water jokes, like the, the kind of stuff that we saw in Crocodile Dundee. Um, but there's a sort of... It aims for a kind of poignancy as well, because Herschel is very concerned about Ben's lapsed faith. Uh, and so there's a... So once the comedy begins to run out of puff, which it does, actually, um, then, it, then it, what takes over is a sort of bittersweet, poignant film. It's quite, it's quite sweet, it's quite light, it's, it's slight, but it's, uh, I quite enjoyed it, really. Uh, Brian, I was reading uh, in the, the paper that there's going to be a comeback for the, for the drive-in cinema. Uh, do you think it's likely? Yeah. 
Well, there already is, Jim, actually. They're, they're springing up around about the place, which is a COVID-related development. Um, but Alexandra Palace in North London, as far as I know, has a full month of driving a proper programme. Um, there's, there's, you can see La La Land and A Star Is Born there on, on next Monday night, uh, I gather. And I think um, it's not just movies either. The comedy circuit has been doing the same thing with drive-ins, where apparently, according to my son, apparently you, you're supposed to beep your horn to signify laughter. Oh, uh, that respect. must be really hard for the for the acts to imagine they're going down well. Well, what about music, uh, Adrian? Can we can we have, will we be dancing in the car park? I don't know uh, a socially distanced mosh pit with cars. I don't know how the uh, <laughs> how the how, I don't know if you can uh, claim for that on your car insurance or not. But um, although there was an attempt a few weeks ago to actually launch a series of of driving concerts, Live Nation did a live from the drive-in. Um, they had all these concerts planned uh, with people like Beverly Knight and Gary Newman, the Lightning Seeds, Jack Savaretti. Um, but then the fear of local lockdowns actually made them decide they couldn't really risk doing it. And the whole thing was just put on, put on hold. Um, I think there's been a couple in Denmark. They've done some socially distanced gigs and uh, apparently the sounds beamed into your car on, a, on an FM radio. So you're not actually hearing it live from the stage. And uh, I think in terms of audience participation, you're allowed to wind down one window in your car. <laughs> and, um, uh, I, I, that I sounds think, like a right uh, old rave. Yeah, yeah. One window and, at a time. Rock and roll, eh? No games <laughs> for you. Mark Billingham has had a successful career as a stand-up comedian and actor, but his real ambition lay elsewhere. A self-confessed crime-writing nerd, what he really wanted to do was write some crime fiction. And in 2001, he published Sleepyhead, an instant bestseller. It allowed him to pursue his dream full-time. Since then, his series of books featuring his detective Tom Thorne have sold more than 10 million copies. He is the only writer to have won the Theakston's Old Peculiar Crime Novel of the Year twice. His latest Thorn adventure, Their Little Secret, is published this week. And Mark joins me now via Zoom from his home in London. Mark, appropriate time to uh, be speaking to you. We've just left lockdown and you're the man who, whose career started with locked-in syndrome, didn't it? <laughs> That's right, yeah. The, the, I guess the central character, well, the victim in my, in my first novel, Sleepyhead, is suffering from locked-in syndrome where you're completely trapped in your own body. You can see and hear and feel and aware of everything going on around you, but you can't move at all. Um, and I just thought that was just a terrible, terrible thing. And, of course, my twisted mind immediately wondered if you could do it to somebody on purpose. So uh, <laughs> that was the basis of my first novel, yeah. Did it feel like that when you were in lockdown then? Um, no, I mean, I, I, like a lot of writers, lock, lockdown didn't make very much difference to, to the way I tend to live day to day. Most writers don't need an excuse not to spend all day in their pyjamas, you know, and I was actually able to work, you know, unlike a, a lot of people who, who unfortunately weren't. So no, nothing, nothing really to complain about. I'm glad you say it's over. Is it? <laughs> <laughs> Who knows? Who knows? Um, you, you, you just used the word twisted little mind there. Yeah, I assume you were, you were, you, you weren't being serious or were you? I mean, do, are, are you an odd, are you an odd person? to be a crime writer? I don't, no, I don't think I'm an odd person, but I, th I think, I mean, I think it was Graham Greene who said all writers have a chip of ice at their heart. And I think crime writers 
that that chip is that chip is quite large. People people want to tell you stuff. They want to tell you stuff all the time when they know what kind of books you write. So uh, they're forever going. Oh, did you hear what happened to old Mr. Johnson up at number forty-seven? And and part of you, you know, the human part of you goes, "That's terrible." But there's a, there's some little voice in your head going, "I'm I'm having that." You know, or you 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 hone in on those those stories on the papers. They're the ones you hone in on. Little stories that make you go, "What? Who? Why?" So you know, I don't think I'm odd. Not not particularly. <laughs> You are, however, a real enthusiast for crime writing, aren't you? I mean, some might describe you as a bit of a crime writing nerd. Uh, so was it always your ambition? Yeah, there you were. You were a successful actor, a comedian. Was it always your ambition? No. My twisted little mind, I've got to get into crime writing. Well, not an ambition. I mean, a dream, possibly. Um, because actually, I'd, by, by that time, I'd written all sorts of things. You know, terrible poetry, terrible plays. And I was writing for my stand-up act and this and that. And then I started writing a bit for television. But a novel just seemed so incredibly daunting. You know, you pick some of these things up and they're like house bricks. And so even though I was, I was reviewing crime fiction, I was interviewing crime writers, you know, people like Michael Connolly and Ian Rankin, I went to interview them, shaking with my little dictaphone, you know, people who are now, you know, I'm doing, I'm doing an event with Ian night after tomorrow and we're good pals, you know, the, the, but that seemed inachievable to me. I, I, I never thought writing what would be possible until I sat down and tried and went, oh, maybe it's not as daunting as I think it is. So you're all uh, obviously on your own, in your own little rooms, doing your writing, but you do get together, don't you? Because you're in a band, aren't you? The 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 the, the fun-loving crime writers. Fun-loving crime writers. Yeah, I mean, it, it's uh, obviously obviously not right this minute, not during lockdown. That's that's been a uh, one of the byproducts of that. Um, but yes, I mean, crime crime writers are a very clubbable bunch. We do tend to get together quite often. Uh, we tend to get on. And yeah, six of us got together and formed this band uh, a couple of years ago. Just a, a bit of fun, something to do. We're all either very good musicians or, in my case, frustrated, very average musicians. And we got together with this band. It started to take off a bit, and then last summer we played Glastonbury I mean wow I know we you know which is it's the kind of thing you you joke about when you're in a band you know oh when we're playing Glastonbury and then we got asked to do it and, and it was a real real bucket list moment and, and you got asked to do it last year did you do it so well that you would have been doing it this year had it no, gone you ahead you never do it two years in a row um, but we did, we got, we did a bunch of other festivals and in fact we had quite a decent tour lined up in this spring, uh, all of which obviously was cancelled, but, um, yeah, we love it. I mean, obviously writing is by, by nature solitary. So the fact that, that every few weeks we get together for a weekend and we do a gig and we, we hang out, we all get on, we're all good mates. It's, uh, it's a lot of fun. It's so much fun that getting back to the writing is quite a chore afterwards. <laughs> But how do you fit it in? Because one of the things about being a successful writer like you are is you get a lot of pressure. Your publisher wants a new book. They want you to come up with something. How on earth do you fit in time to go on a rock tour? Well, I mean, uh, uh, what, I think something like 95% of published authors in this country have other jobs. You know, I'm, I'm one of the very few who's lucky to write full time. So I've got no excuse. I mean, what else am I going to do all day? Um, a book a year is, is manageable when it is your job and it's the only, the only thing you do. So it's just a question of managing your time and going, right, well, that's writing time. That's going to have fun and pretending you're a rock star time and, you know, whatever it might be. Obviously, you have to do the stuff to go with the book. You have to promote the book. Uh, you're touring. Obviously, now all our, all our events are online, but uh, <clears throat> were, were the pandemic not happening right now, I'd be, I'd be hither and yon up and down the country doing events. But again, I love that. That's one of the perks of the job for me. Uh, and your latest book, Their Little Secret, is uh, an, another Tom Thorne uh, 
book, isn't it? It's a, it, it's a, it's about your favourite detective. How do you get on with him? Do you like well, him? I, I, yes, I do. I mean, their little secret is the is is my latest paperback. The the new book is uh, the new book which, which come out in hardback day is is it is a Tom Thorne book, but it's a prequel. It's actually ah. it's a prequel to Sleepyhead. So I've gone back in time because it's the twentieth book. I wanted to do something a, a little bit special so yeah i've taken him back to the mid 90s so he's younger he's less cynical and less scarred he's still married both his parents are still alive uh, and crucially it's pre all the technology so there's no mobile phones there's no internet there's no cctv all that stuff which makes our life as crime writers quite hard and there's lots of there's lots of fun stuff it's euro 96 so you know that tournament is in full swing it's you know back when you had to use an a to z to get around and if you wanted to get photos developed you went to the chemist it feels like it feels like ancient history now doesn't it but... photos developed what's that i know i know <laughs> uh, what, one of the things about Tom Thorne, David Morrissey um, just did him so well uh, when, when it was on, on Sky. Several of your books yeah. were put, put onto Sky. When you write about him now, can you, do you only see David Morrissey in your head then? Is that how it works? I absolutely don't see David Morrissey. I, I, and in fact, I mean, w when the show was on, David and I did quite a few events together and I would say, I don't see you when I write. And he would go, well, I don't bloody see you when I act. Uh, <laughs> uh, because I've never described Thorne. Thorne is never, is uh, not somebody I've ever described physically. So, so readers have their own idea of him. I'm sure a lot of readers who, uh, who watch those shows will now see David. Uh, and that's absolutely fine in the same way that, you know, I couldn't read an Inspector Morse book without seeing John Thorne. Um, but he's, no, he's not, he's not in my head when I write. And in fact, what a real treat uh, because of this 20th book we've done a special audio version of this book with a full cast fully dramatized and David is playing Tom Thorne again so we just recorded that last week and it was a lot of fun to have David back as Tom Thorne. Uh, one of the things that you've said about the craft of writing is because a lot of us are, are very interested in how you make people turn the page you know are there little tricks of the trade cliffhangers and so on you've always said characters the most important thing do you still stand by that oh i do i do you're absolutely right that those are tricks of the trade you know they're weapons you have in your in your armory the cliffhanger the reveal the twist and you know it's a good day at the office when you come up with a good twist of course it is that's great but you've got nothing if you, if you don't have characters the reader can engage with and, and care about. Because if you've got that, you've got suspense from page one because it's a crime novel. The readers know there is some bad stuff coming. And if they care about the characters, then you, you, know, you have suspense. In fact, I can't read books that are just trick after trick after twist after twist. I stop caring then. It's just, it's just technique. It's just, it's just the tricks of the trade. You've got to give them good characters. Now, one thing, uh, Mark, I can't let you go without saying is that my children, uh, now grown up, uh, they they were really big fans of Maid Marian back in the day. Your gormless character, yes. How close was he to you? Very. He was very close to me. I uh, I, I made him I made him a brummy just like me, and he was very. Uh, I, I probably had a slightly thicker Birmingham accent back then. Um, it was it was one of the best jobs I've ever done. Um, with, you know, running around in a in a forest with a big sword in this show, who, which for people who, who don't remember, it was you know Tony Robinson's sort of twist on the on the Maid Marian Robin Hood uh, myth. Um, but it was also the show that made me a writer because I, I just got that show as a jobbing actor four years on, we're still doing it, it was a big success. Tony was very busy, Tony Robinson doing a million other things. Knew I wrote, so said, do you want to come on board and help write this show? So by the time that show finished, I'd become 
a television writer. I'd become a writer. And it's all thanks to that show. So, so Wow, so it changed your life. Oh, it very much, very much. And, and you know, we're still very close. I still see Tony a lot and we, we work together now and again. And no, it's a show I'm, I'm enormously fond of. And I do get a lot of emails from people going, it makes me feel very old because they say, oh, I love that when I was a kid. <laughs> yes. And they're only like 30. And I'm like, ah! <laughs> <laughs> well, that's it, of course, uh, for you, Mark. Then uh, you, you, your, your next book is surely about uh, an actor-comedian who then became a writer. Surely that's it. It's about if, you. If I can throw a murder in, uh, you know, there needs, <laughs> there needs to be something beastly. You know, you can't, you can't keep a reader's attention engaged for 400 pages if the, if the most dangerous thing that happens is somebody doesn't take their library books back. There has to be some, you know, have, the stakes have to be quite high. Got to be some jeopardy. Can there be, can you go too far though? I mean, there's sometimes you think, do a bit of research and somebody says to you, well, would the character do this? And you think, oh no, my readers wouldn't like that. Or, or, or are your readers up for everything? Um, well, again, I, I guess it's what I'm up for as a, as a writer. And, you know, there are times maybe when you think, oh, maybe that's, that's a bit, you know, pushing, pushing the envelope a little bit. And then you turn the news on you know, or you open a newspaper. And there is very little I've ever come up with that, that you know, when you compare it to some of the stuff that happens in real life, doesn't, doesn't seem really mild. But my books have got less, less violent, I think, as they've gone on over, over 20 years, much less on page sort of blood and gore, because actually I've learned that less is more. I, th I think, I hope, I'm a better writer than I was 20 years ago. And it's just about, you know, the reader can come up with pictures far more graphic than anything a writer can describe. So, yeah, it's, I don't think there's any area I wouldn't venture into. Um, I wouldn't do anything, I wouldn't write about anything that could not happen. You know, I talk to coppers and I have various sort of technical advisors I go to, and if they go, nah, that's never going to happen, I wouldn't do it. There, there has to be credibility. So you've got in your time capsule, you've gone back to 1996. Will you go back further? Will you go back again? Did you enjoy that? Oh, I loved it. I loved it. Um, it. You know, it's writing about a different character in a time that I remember very fondly. Um, you know, a time, you know, and I, you can have great fun with that kind of hindsight. You can have great fun with Thorne looking at these massive, massive mobile phones and going, well, they're never going to catch on. Or, my God, £150,000 for a four-bedroom house in London. That's ridiculous. <laughs> you know, so stuff like that is a lot of fun. Whether I go back to kind of Tom Thorne at school or... <laughs> <laughs> I, I think I've probably gone back as far as I'm going to do, but it was a lot of fun doing it. And 1996, sorry to say this, Mark, it's 24 years ago. I know, I know. And, and yeah, I, I'm, I'm sure I can remember it. I remember it like it was yesterday. Like I say, it's all set during Euro 96. I remember that incredible. I was at some, I was at Wembley the night we, we stuffed Holland 4-1. So yeah, that, that tournament it looms large in the book. Mark, it's been brilliant speaking to you. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Sadly, that's all we have time for from It's Friday this week. My thanks to Jackie Stephen, Adrian Thrills and Brian Viner for their insights and to Mark Billingham for telling us why we should all love crime writing. Join me next week for news from the entertainment front line via Spotify, Apple or Google or sign up to Mail Plus for much more exclusive content at mailplus.co.uk. Until then, I'm Jim White. Thanks for your time. Thank you.